warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Stephen. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing well, mate. How about yourself? Yes. Looking forward to today's episode because it's going to be the start of something that's going to be ongoing for a fair few months. It's it's quite a weird one because regular listeners will know that we're, we've started, <laughs> only just started, the Norman Wisdom season. Yeah, <laughs> two two years ago, and we're still on the first one. Carry on season. We're into two at this point. We're up to carry on nurse, the James Bonds. We've only recorded the Doctor No episode, but there was a certain genre of movies that I wanted to do from the outset, and it's what's commonly known as the British New Wave. But looking at the titles, and I'm going to go into this a little bit when we do the review properly British New Wave only encompasses officially or generally sort of regarded as about 10 titles in the uh, late 50s early 60s in my mind I think there's a few more that should be included also I think there's a few titles that I think are highly influential um, as to what became British New Wave yeah which is why I've selected this particular movie today. Can you see my thinking behind it? Do you know? Can you see why I've actually chose this movie today, mate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, in some ways, um, not on its own necessarily, but in, it's a, it's one of a few films that were a turning point, um, and a, a proto um, type for some film. The, you know, as you say, a, a genre of films. Mm. There, was, there was elements being brought in from a number of areas into this film that were influenced it you know in the same way that you know hitchcock is credited with bringing different elements together to create a, a, a style that was recognizable yeah. this is this is brought in a number of elements that have then gone on to to influence other films mm. and a genre of films and it's like it's like the 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 say about um, certain bands like the Velvet Underground, yeah. that you know they they weren't massively successful at the time, but the the bands that they inspired, exactly. who then were massively um, successful. Um, that's although this was a successful film, it's not. I'm not saying it. it oh wasn't, yeah, it was, yeah. I think it's the biggest biggest film of that year in this country, but mm. it's it's in the public consciousness now. It's not got that standing. It's forgotten mm-hmm. in many ways, but. The, what it went on to inspire definitely hasn't been forgotten. So exactly. I think there's a lot of importance to this culturally, um, as well as it being um, of value in itself as a film. But I say yes, I know where you're coming from yeah. as far as why this this needed to be 
needed to be a starting point. I think a, of, so. Of, of a study, as it were. Yeah, there might have been a couple before this that were edging towards what we were going to be seeing over the next 15 years, 20 years. I mean, I've heard this film or saw this film being described as Brief Encounters' darker twin brother. <laughs> because the realism that was in Brief Encounter, to a certain degree, but it was a romantic sort of um, romantic story, was this this is more so, soap opera with an element of crime to it. Um, I could see where the Brief Encounter comparison comes in, but this, I think, is the ideal starting point for... Not just British New Wave, but social realism, that sort of thing. It's not quite Brit noir. I don't think we can get away with calling this a noir movie. But definitely no. the social realist side of things, I think. Yeah. There's there's noir uh, influences in there. Oh, yeah. Um, Elements. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And some of that is down to um, some of the sort of characterisation um, based upon the various people that are portrayed as EastEnders of the time yep. were were actually influenced by sort of uh, Americana in a way. I mean, yeah. uh, I think that you know, been so close after the war, there was, a, you know, in the, in the gangster films that there'd been previously, I think, you know, the the a lot of the, um, the spivs and such like that were, were peddling um, their petty crimes around the East <laughs> and saw themselves as being has been the gangsters being Jimmy uh, Cagney's, these, yeah. where they weren't they were just petty you know so but that but so it allowed for there to be some some noir elements in there but yeah. there was also elements of you know of, of German expressionism and and such and the, re, the the realism that you've been pointing out that's you know that's a, the, the key factor in all of this that it, it a lot of the other films previously when they've been um portraying the domestic environment it had been um the the higher classes rather than um, the working classes. Exactly, which is what we're going to touch upon when we talk about the movie. Let's take a short break. We'll be back after this. For those that aren't aware, who haven't seen what the show notes actually say, it's it always rains on Sunday from 1947. Social realism, British New Wave cinema, the kitchen sink drama, terms that you may be familiar with to describe a series of movies that emerged in Britain in the late 1950s through to the early 60s. These films depicted situations where working class angry young men, cynical towards modern society, spend their time in cramped bedsits or drinking in grimy backstreet pubs. Usually set in the north of England, Friday nights would be spent trying to pull the birds dreading the countdown of the hours that would lead them to a return to work, usually in a factory on a Monday morning. The themes would be hard-hitting and controversial. Themes that up to this point had not really been examined in British cinema. There was abortion, homelessness, interracial relationships and extramarital affairs brought to the screen through people such as John Osborne, Keith Waterhouse and Tony Richardson. When we think of the British New Wave, we of course picture Alan Bates, Albert Finney or Rita Tushingham on the big screen. But the movement also developed through art, 
novels, television plays, but initially it was through the theatre. There are generally ten movies that are considered to form the heart of the British New Wave cinema movement, starting in 1959 with Look Back in Anger and Room at the Top. 1960 would see the release of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, along with The Entertainer. In 1961 there was the marvellous A Taste of Honey, and 1962 would bring us a kind of loving, the L-shaped room and the loneliness of the long-distance runner. This sporting life and Billy Lyre would appear on cinema screens the following year. But to my mind, there are several other movies just as important and noteworthy that should really be included. For example, A Place to Go, The Leather Boys, This Is My Street and Violent Playground. Some may rightly argue that Poor Cow, Up the Junction and Spring and Port Wine should also be included. And of course there's also a place in this list for Alfie and Kez. But first, we need to briefly step back about 30 years or so and take a look at a film movement that undoubtedly laid the groundwork for the future kitchen sink dramas. If we go back to the 1930s, Britain was churning out a succession of popular and successful documentaries. Documentaries designed to support the working class masses, but they were often produced by middle class filmmakers. One of the most famous of these documentarians was John Grierson, a Scot employed by the grandly named Empire Marketing Board Film Unit, a government funded organisation. Up until 1929, the British cinema audience was fed a continuous supply of fiction-based movies, whose subject matter usually revolved around the upper class. Or there were newsreels providing the day's events from Ascot or the result of the Oxford-Cambridge boat race. But this year would see the release of Grierson's first documentary, an 80-minute piece entitled Drifters. All of a sudden, the viewers were exposed to an unfamiliar world and an unfamiliar entertainment format. It was the world of the North Sea herringfishers, and it was brought to them by means of a documentary. The piece was filmed in the Shetlands as well as at Lerwick, Lowestoft, Yarmouth, and in the North Sea itself. It premiered at the Film Society on the 10th of November 1929, along with the UK's first screening of Sir J. Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin. John Grierson was familiar with Potemkin as he previously worked on titling a copy for the American audiences. A big admirer of Eisenstein and modernist art, Grierson set out to make a film with distinctive British characteristics. And like Battleship Potemkin, John Grierson used non-professional actors and extensive location shooting to create what he saw as a more authentic reality. Industrial Britain followed two years later. Unlike Drifters, this documentary featured a voiceover narration provided by the traditional plummy upper-class voice of Donald Caltrop. Half the history of England lies behind these scenes of yesterday. The history of daily work done, of people kept on through the centuries, growing things, making things, transporting things between the English villages and the English towns. 
And with Industrial Britain, a defining moment in the advance of the British documentary movement, we see creative achievement first being unified expressively with social intent. Housing Problems, first released in 1935, is notable as the first documentary to feature interviews. And although the filmmakers were keen to use the working class as their subject matter, Britain was still not ready for a working class narrator. First, Councillor Lauder, chairman of the Stepney Housing Committee, will tell you something of the problem of slum clearance. The problem of the slum faces us because in the early days, rows upon rows of ugly... Badly designed houses were hastily put up to provide accommodation for the ever-increasing army of workers which poured in from the country to the town. The documentary was one of the first instances of what we now know as Vox Pops, with everyday people speaking directly to camera. And we never hear the interviewer. This house getting on my nerves. We're shored up in every room. It's a staircase that you can't walk up it unless you burn to your seasick. One leg you want longer than the other. And if the upstairs is coming downstairs, well, it's sinking. We went to see the new houses, and they're lovely. For here, it gets on your nerves, for everything's filthy. Dirty, filthy walls, and the vermin in the walls is wicked. The film explored the desperate living conditions of British slum dwellers and the local authorities' plans to improve housing. When a public authority embarks on slum clearance work, it must take people just as they are. It is, however, our experience that if you provide people from the slums with decent homes, they quickly respond to the improved conditions and keep their homes clean and tidy. In Stepney, we are finding that the amount of interest which the people are taking in their new flats is advancing day by day. It's still regarded as a groundbreaking example of early British documentary work with techniques that are still used today. But perhaps the best known of all the documentaries at this time was Nightmare. Made the year after housing problems in 1936, it was a tribute to postal workers, with music by Benjamin Britten and verse by W.H. Auden. This is the night mail crossing the border, bringing the cheque and the postal order, letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner of the girl next door, pulling up B took a steady climb, the gradients against her but she's on time. An ambitious movie that experimented with the use of visual style, sound, narrative and editing techniques is the most critically acclaimed film to be produced within the British documentary film movement. Past cotton grass and moorland boulder, shoveling white steam over her shoulder, snorting noisily as she passes, silent miles of wind-bent grasses. Birds turn their heads as she approaches, stare from the bushes at her blank-faced coaches. Sheepdogs cannot turn her course, they slumber on with paws across. In the farm she passes, no one wakes but a jug in a bedroom gently shakes. Thank you. 
1939, and as Britain headed into war with Germany, the documentarians put their newfound skills into creating works of fiction. These techniques ensured that they were now producing movies of a more relevant and serious tone. Alberto Cavalcanti, who had previously found success with his 1935 documentary Coalface, would go on to helm the classic war movie Went the Day Well in 1942. The film tells the story of a sleepy English village occupied by disguised German paratroopers as an advance post for a planned invasion. Here's the opening sequence, setting the scene for what is now regarded as one of Britain's finest war movies. Good day to you. Come to have a look at Bramley End, have you? Pretty little place. And a nice old church, too. 13th century parts of it. Still, it won't be that that's brought you, I don't suppose. It'll be these names on this grave here. And the story that's buried along with them. Look funny, don't they? German names in an English churchyard. They wanted England, these Jerrys did. And this is the only bit they got. The Battle of Bramley End. That's what the papers called it. Nothing was said about it till after the war was over. And old Hitler got what was coming to him. Whitson Weekend, it was, 1942. As peaceful and quiet here then as it is now. Even though there was a war on. It was Saturday morning when those army lorries came rumbling along the road from Upton. We'd have laughed if you told us we'd got a real live German right under our very noses. And we'd have thought you was a bit weak in the upper story if you'd said the chaps in those lorries was anything else but ordinary British Tommies. Pretty soon we learned better. And no mistake. Harry Watt would continue making documentaries such as Target for Tonight in the early days of the war, before going on to direct Nine Men in 1943, the story of a British army patrol stuck in a desert fort during the African campaign. Watt directed the movie at Ealing Studios after his arrival from the Crown Film Unit. Watt and his colleague Alberto Cavalcanti were poached from Crown following Ealing head Michael Balkan's unsuccessful attempt to take over the unit. A small-budget movie, it featured real-life soldiers given special leave to appear in the film, led by serving officer Jack Lambert. All right! Salope! Ah! Keep your head up, chapel. Don't wrap that rifle around your neck, Morgan. Carry the butt to the right. Look what we've got the tea. What do you think, cop? Chicken? Get a cup of char, two slices of striped meat dead, a couple of bags of mystery they call sausages... And a bit of what, if you're lucky. And you'll like it. I got a corn. Some smart Alec took me up in the barbed wire today. I think I know who it was. What's on tomorrow, Sergeant? Same thing. Weapon training, field training, section attack, platoon attack. Can't we have a change, Sergeant? How about some nice guard mounting? Guard mounting my fanny. What about a crack at the Jerry's? I remember when we were out in the Middle East in one of those desert shows. Our battalion was ordered up to do an attack on the flank. There were nine of us in the lorry. An officer, myself, and seven men. The going was a bit soft, and our lorry got stuck in the sand. 
Apart from the documentarians, a new group of filmmakers emerged during the war years. Not afraid to adopt the various styles that had formerly been allied to the documentary format, these guys had a background that would have previously been considered perhaps a little highbrow or from an entertainment culture. Names such as Noel Coward, Laundra and Gilead and Anthony Asquith soon began to produce pictures that drew their characters from across a broad range of not only the geographical locations, but from across the entire class system. Documentary maker Norman Swallow would remark that the films portrayed human beings behaving in a human way. Love on the Dole was directed in 1941 by John Baxter. Based on the novel written in 1933 by Walter Greenwood, it starred Deborah Carr and Clifford Evans. The story takes place near Salford in Manchester during the Depression years of the 1930s and was the first novel to be set against a background of mass unemployment. Immediately recognised as a classic on its publication in 1933, the novel was raw, violent and powerful. This rawness and power is evident in the film adaptation and we learn of Harry and Sally Hardcastle, who are growing up in a society preoccupied with relentless poverty, exploited by bookies and pawnbrokers, intimidated by petty officials and living in constant fear of the dole queue and the means test. His love affair with a local girl ends in a shotgun marriage and disowned by his family, Harry is tempted by crime. Sally, meanwhile, falls in love with Larry Meath, a self-educated Marxist, the definitive depiction of a northern town in the midst of the 30s depression. Let's go home, Sal. I head standing about back alleys. There's no need for us to be standing about back alleys. Not if you don't want Let's not kid one another, Sal. We both want the same thing. But you know my ideas. 45 bob a week. What a wage to build the future on. And look at Marlowe's. We none of us know when we're going to finish. See, what can I offer you? You do love me, don't you, Larry? Why do you ask that, Sal, and you know? Well, then, let's get married. I can still go on working so as we can have more money. Oh, Larry, I'd do out for you. I know you would, Sal. But it's this place, we can't ever get away from it. We'd go on and on, but it'd get us in the end. It gets everybody in the end. But you can't have everything. We not only can't, but we don't. It's wanting decent things and knowing they'll never be yours. Dreaming about things you can't have don't get you anywhere. Does it, Larry? Besides, it isn't where you live. It's who you live with. Well, then, Sal, we'll have to start saving up. That's if you can wait. By the start of the war, Noel Coward was already a well-respected figure in the world of the theatre. In 1942, he was approached by film producers Anthony Havelock Allen and Filippo de Guidice to make a film on any subject of his choosing. Coward had heard about the sinking of Lord Mountbatten's ship, HMS Kelly, and thought it would make an effective film. Needing a good technician to help him, David Lean was recommended as being the best in the business. After more than a decade as a highly respected editor, in which we serve was Lean's first directorial credit. 
He'd already declined several offers to direct what was known as quota quickies, fearing that becoming associated with inferior films could damage his career. Coward's first script initially turned out to be far too long, but he eventually came up with the idea of the Carly float as a device to flashback to some of the best scenes he'd written, focusing on just three of the survivors. There's Captain Kim Ross, played by Noel Coward, Walter Hardy, portrayed by Bernard Miles, and Shorty Blake, played by John Mills, unequivocally marked as upper-middle, lower-middle, and working-class, respectively. Mountbatten himself advised Lean on the sequence where the ship is dive-bombed. The documentary-style opening showing the building of the ship was filmed by Ronald Neem and Anthony Havelock-Allen, with a voiceover supplied by Leslie Howard. is the story of a ship and the men who serve it. Why, Walter Hardy, whatever is the matter with you this morning? Anyone would think he was going away forever. Proceed with the following operations as ordered. One, give us a kiss. Two, chuck us another of mum's sandwiches. Three, cheer up and remember this isn't a funeral, it's an honeymoon. And four, give us another kiss. Daddy, I wonder where we shall all be this time next year. A lot might happen between now and this time next year. The following year, 1943, would see the production of Millions Like Us. It was written and directed by Sidney Gilliatt and Frank Launder, and starred Patricia Rock and Gordon Jackson. The film depicted the effect of the Second World War on ordinary British people, in particular women, where anybody could be called up and pressed into service. The bulk of the movie takes place in an aeroplane factory. Here we meet Celia, a daydreamer played by Patricia Rock. There's Gwen, a down-to-earth sort played by Megs Jenkins, and the snobbish Jennifer, played by Anne Crawford, looking down her nose at everyone and feeling that her new job is quite simply beneath her. But factory boss Charlie Forbes, here portrayed by Eric Portman, is determined that these petty class distinctions have no place during wartime. Every extra part you turn out means just that many extra bombers to drop just those many extra tons of bombs on some German factory. You know as well as I do. It's right here in this factory that we deliver the goods, which enable the RAF to deliver the goods, which stops Jerry from delivering his. So come, let's make a proper go of it this week. Put a jerk in it, chums. How's this, Blake? Very well, did you get home all right last night, Charlie? Must have been about half past one before I got to bed. Well, mind you, young woman, we're expected to reach a record output this week. Young woman? Miss Knowles, then. So see you do your best towards it. Mrs. Blake, Miss Hodge wants you in the office. Is it about the clothing coupons? I don't know, I'm sure. Take her home. Huh? Get something to take your place. When did it happen? 
last night over Germany. What we see in this movie is a sense that the characters on screen are just delightfully ordinary. This makes them so much more believable. For example, Celia meets and marries and tragically loses a young RAF pilot played excellently here by Gordon Jackson. He's no hero, but a shy, awkward youth, barely out of his teens. Yes, well, it's the best room I've got left. If your husband hadn't nipped in quick, I'd have let it elsewhere. The old town's packed out with the Air Force. There's such a run on things. I don't know what to do, I'm sure. Can't do your breakfast, you know. Yes, I told Mrs. Blake. No, it'll have to be do for yourself on round. There's a slot meter and a gas ring, but you'll have to bring your own clocks. I think we'll manage. It's a bathroom upstairs. Geezer's broke, but the octap's all right. Well, I'll have to leave you now. Fishmongers are expecting a bit of skate. I don't want to be right at the back of the queue. She didn't say there's a war on, that's something. Not exactly ideal, is it? Oh, I don't know. Wait till I've finished with it and given it a real spring clean. And we've got some of our own things in it. Don't think much of this. I wonder if Dad'll give us the table after the drawing room. The curtains want cleaning. Room could do with a little air, too. When can we move in, Fred, tomorrow? I've got my sleeping out pass for the day after. All right. Oh, a pity we can't change wallpaper. Yes. Just won't have to look at it, I suppose. Don't expect I'll want too much, Mrs. Blake. Never mind, one of these days when it's all over, we'll have a house of our own. Then we'll show them. Yes, we will, won't we? And if I get my old job back in the insurance, I was earning just in four pounds a week. Four pounds? Well, things were cheaper then. Besides, I was only 20. I'll be older when this war's over. Say, 25. But then I should be making about five pounds a week with any luck. Sterling's going in daylight ops, I expect. We could manage a small house in five pounds a week. Remember those some wee places just outside Glasgow? On a hill overlooking the fields. You're not listening. Oh, yes, I am, Fred. He said we could manage a small house on five pounds a week after the war. Well, I might ask for six. Why not? Oh, it's a Scots insurance company. Tell them you've got a wife and children to support. Children? Well, you will have. When? When the war's over, of course. Oh. How many? Two. What sort? Boy and a girl. Sure? It doesn't always turn out the way you want it, you know. Well, this will. All right. Fred. What? So happy. We're always going to be happy. You get the sense that everyone has a part to play in the war effort, hence the title, Millions Like Us. And even that small, insignificant aircraft component that you work on day in, day out, could actually mean life or death for a pilot. Incidentally, fans of Charters and Caldicott, the two cricket-obsessed characters from Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, will be pleased to see them make an appearance in this movie. For a short time following the war, the British realism movement took a back seat. 
and cinema goers were treated to lavish spectacles and period costume dramas. The cinema screens were filled with such titles as Uncle Silas, Jassy, An Ideal Husband and Bonnie Prince Charlie. But in 1947, a movie would come along that is now seen by many as the definitive precursor to what we really understand to be the British New Wave movement or the kitchen sink drama. It always rains on Sunday. Over the years since its release, the film, which was initially viewed as a neatly engrossing slice-of-life drama, has now come to be viewed as one of the most overlooked achievements of late 1940s cinema, seen by some reviewers as a British film noir. Made by Ealing Studios and directed by Robert Hamer, it's a far cry from the cosy comedies that that particular studio would become more famous for over the next few years. In fact, Hamer himself would go on to direct one of the Ealing's most beloved comedies, Kind Hearts and Coronets. When the film was re-released in 2012, Peter Bradshaw, writing in The Guardian, made the point that he believed the film to be the forerunner to the Angry Young Man movies, and went on to say... That huge teeming market scene bears comparison with Carnet's Les Enfants du Paradis. It follows a typical Sunday in a working class neighbourhood. It's raining, of course, but there's nothing dull and Sundayish about what's going to happen. And without giving too much away here, what does happen is that we get a story that chronicles a March Sunday in the lives of a Bethnal Green family and their various acquaintances. It centres on the dilemma faced by Rose, played by Googie Withers an ex-barmaid bored by her older husband and burdened by two grown-up stepdaughters. Incidentally, the husband portrayed here by Edward Chapman is probably more familiar from the Norman Wisdom movies as Mr Grimsdale. An old flame played by John McCallum breaks out of Dartmoor and turns up hiding in the Anderson shelter demanding food and a few hours refuge. We get a suspenseful, yet at the same time believable, biting portrait of an East End scarred by poverty, and we witness all manner of folk striving, honestly or otherwise, to get by. 
But amongst the tension, we also get a snapshot of post-war London, complete with rationing, Sunday roasts, tin baths and sing-alongs in the local boozer. Apparently Bethnal Green residents at the time protested at their portrayal. Many of the characters are crooks or chancers, and at least one of them murders somebody else. And there were censorship problems. The Cinematograph Exhibitors Association's reviewer declared it an unsavoury film, with appeal only to those with very broad minds. Despite this, it was Ealing's box office hit of the year. Impressive, complex and ahead of its time. An exhilarating bleak thriller, brutal in places and totally believable. Better unload that lock quick. And not the sort of stuff you can shove under the bed. Well, who are we going to try then? Not old easily. Not after the way he did his last time. Diabolical old liberty taker, that's what he is. Ta, Sam. Morning, Mrs Spry. I just been having a look at your visitor's book. I can see that. What do you want? Extraordinary what a lot of Smiths and Browns stay here, isn't it? I don't give them their ruddy names. Mind if we look at your guests? All the same if I do, I suppose. It's taking a ruddy liberty, though. You've got to help me, Rosie. I'm on the run. I know. See the paper. Oh, you shouldn't have come here. I've been on the run for 12 hours. I died up somewhere till dark. Hang now, Rosie. No, what? You just don't seem yourself today. I'm all right. I expect you need a bit of a change. Need to shut up in the house all day. I'll have a large scotch. Large scotch. Yeah, me too. You boys are getting expensive tastes. What's the matter? Beer turn sour? Any self-respecting beer turned sour. Well, you know, it is, Mr. Fothergill. We just couldn't drink ordinary common beer with you, could we now? Couldn't you? It Always Rains on Sunday, released in the UK 1947. Directed by Robert Hamer, starring Googie Withers, Jack Warner, John McCallum, Edward Chapman, Susan Shaw... Patricia Plunkett, we've got some great names in this cast. Synopsis. As I mentioned earlier, after the war, British films began avoiding the heiresses and the lordships that had dominated the drama field, and they began to pursue realism, which was often just as artificial as the earlier sort of white telephone pictures. John McCallum here plays Tommy Swan, a product of the working class who tries to better himself by becoming a criminal. Escaping from prison, Swan hides out in the East London home of his former girlfriend, Rose, played by Googie Withers, who has since married George Sandigate, played by Edward Chapman. The film is told from Swan's point of view, and a dismal view it is. Nor does Rose seem any happier with her drab lot in life. Swan's return does nothing but further their misery, tearing Rose's family apart and sending Swan back into the arms of the law. The film's considered a tension-laden slice of life, it Always Rains on Sunday does full justice to the Arthur Laburn novel on which it's based, especially when the film leaves the environs of the house and zeroes in on its colourful roster of bit actors. The novel, Stephen, don't know if you're aware, the novel it's based on, written by Arthur Laburn. Uh, the author also wrote a, a book called Goodbye Piccadilly, Farewell Leicester Square, which became Frenzy, filmed by oh, Alfred, right. Alfred yes. Hitchcock in 1972. As we said in the preamble before, we're going to use this movie as the starting point for our look at British New Wave cinema. And as we said, it's not part of the movement. It's not generally considered the ten films. Um, But I think it's just as important because of the influence that it has. Now, at this point, I'm just going to rattle off the ten movies that I think are generally 
considered the British New Wave the kitchen sink dramas as they also became known as we never we haven't used that phrase today but kitchen sink dramas or the British New Wave and I think you're probably going to agree with me on these ten uh, room at the top look back in anger and the entertainer Saturday night Sunday morning taste of honey kind of loving loneliness of the long distance runner L shaped room this sporting life and Billy liar famous famous movies a, a great list of titles starring you know people who do we see in there alan bates rita tushingham judy christie albert finney those type of people yeah yeah i mean you, you it's it's littered with those that you know were going to become character actors extraordinary in, oh yeah in films um in the future um from these and uh the, yeah you can't you can't argue when you actually are presented with the the actual knowledge of what they were as far as films and what they ended up inspiring as well as the, the quality of the films themselves. You can't argue against that list at all. That's the definitive. I think that's the one that's generally considered the 10 movies. There's a lot of Woodfall productions in there, which is uh, our Harry Saltzman, who went on to do the Bond movies and Tony Richardson, you know, those guys, and it's it's going to be fascinating as we unravel this really interesting story of a very important part of British cinema history. But what I want to include, I'm going to use those ten as my base, um, and you can agree or disagree with this, and I'm, I want your input on this, mate, but I'm thinking in between those, as we get to certain movies, I think should be included, not necessarily because they're, part of the British New Wave, but I think it's an, another sort of snapshot or another view of what was going on at the cinema at the time. So, for example, when we get to sort of the Billy Liar type era, we might include Alfie. Or, sorry, just to get, we might include the Blue Lamp. We might re-record our Lost Blue Lamp episode. Whoa! <laughs> um, I think that is right, because there are some films that... Um, were either counterbalances or they were influenced by these films and it's worth showing at the time what was actually um, coming out to to be showing what these films did yeah so I think it's worthwhile um, putting them in context in that way and rather than them being in isolation Mm. I think you know Alf is a good example of one that would fit in amongst the British New Wave movies. Well, it wouldn't have happened as a film. It wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the exactly. the, the foreigners that we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and we might break one of the unwritten rules of the Real Britannia podcast, and I'm sure you'll happily agree to this, is towards the end of the season, look at Cathy Come Home, possibly. Yeah, why Even not? TV play, but... I think it certainly deserves to be part of what we're going to be talking about, and it'll give us a good excuse to, ch- to chat some early Ken Loach again, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, that fellow, eh? Yeah. What's, what, what, what can we say about him? Yeah, well, he's done a few things, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> now, as an official curator of the Village Hall of Fame, you've done your research, I take it, sir, but there must be some have, new entries. Yes. Who have we got? Yeah, the um, those that are entering... The Village Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. We've got Hermione Baddeley. Yes. Or Baddeley. Um, we've got Alfie Bass um, and perhaps 
easier to overlook is a guy called Fred Griffiths. Okay. Um, who um, he uh, is another one of these that were you know very much you you know he's been in in the background in things and you've never really um, noticed um, so much. So he's not one that screams out, but um, yeah, he was in Carry On Nurse and Passport to Pimlico. Excellent, but, um, yeah. But uh, yes, and Alfie Bass. Um, Hell Drivers. Um, Hell Drivers and Brief Encounter. Of course, yeah. And uh, Hermione uh, was in Scrooge and Passport to Pimlico. There we go. This, so, is, this is an Ealing production, so we're going to see a lot of the Ealing stable of characters, uh, character actors appearing. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's about ten or so people that have now had their second yeah. um, appearances. Sydney Taffler um, and a couple of others, isn't there? I could think of straight yeah, off the top Sydney of my head. Yeah, Sydney Taffler, um, John Slater, Nigel Stock, Susan Shaw, wow. um, J- Jane Hilton, Betty Ann Davis. Really? Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> surprisingly, uh, surprisingly, um, oh, um, Grace. Uh, Chris Arnold, uh, Rita Hope. But the surprising one was um, that Edward Chapman um, is in, is a second appearance, uh, but has yet to appear in a normal Wisdom film. You spotted him. Um, that was what I was going to talk to you about, because Edward Chapman is the father. Yeah. Who's better known as Mr. Mr. Grimsdale. Mr. Grimsdale. I've, yeah. I've seen this film three times, and it wasn't until I watched it yesterday that I realised who he actually was. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, I've, I've seen it a couple of times, I'm like... He does look familiar. And then I realised, going through, trying to check out the Hall of Fame, that it, it was actually him. Um, yeah, well, you know. I, I watched, um, the, the last just about 10 days ago, mm. I watched um, The Proud Valley, which is Paul Robeson doing a, a British, well, a Welsh mining um, disaster film. Um, yeah. And the um, the father of the family in, in, in that is... Edward Chapman playing a, a Welshman, oh, unrecognisable, really. Wow! So, so it's, he, you know, he had a he had a career outside normal wisdom, even though he, he, from a certain point onwards, he appeared in every normal wisdom feature. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, he's he's um he's not as recognisable as as Mr. Grimsdale as he becomes. No. But um, but yeah, they also um, these there's also a fourth appearance for somebody in this who comes into this film, which is um. Frederick Piper. Okay. Um, yeah, he has been in um, in which we serve thirty nine steps and passport to Pumnica. So excellent. He, um, he's, he's catching up with the Hickson. So uh. which is the Hickson, <laughs> yeah, amazingly. But yes, I mean, it's, as you say, there's a lot of people that are now just on the cusp of, particularly because of Alien um, Stable, um, who will be very soon, in one way or another, be will straight into the Village Hall of Fame with their third appearances. Yeah. There's great, great number of character actors here that we recognise from oh. other things, and it was a great casting that in, in a lot of ways, not just the main set of actors, but the the people on the fringes as well. Just incredible, really. I'm going to mention a couple more. Yeah. That I think may actually, as you say, be on the cusp, but certainly one that I think has been already inducted. First of all. There's a lady, the next door neighbour, that pokes her head out the window and is talking to Googie Withers as she's pretending to collect the pegs off the washing line. Oh, yes. Is, yeah. a, is a wonderful British character actress called Edie Martin. Um, and by the time this movie was being filmed, she was just nearly into her 70s. And she carried on acting right up to 1964. 
and she's in pretty much every single Ealing comedy. Man in the White Suit, Titfield, Thunderbolt, yeah. Lavender Hill Mob, all of those. So she will appear at some point. She's just one of those faces that you'll always recognise from 50s British cinema. I've literally just looked on IMDb and we have got to research this. We've got to go back and watch it. At the very bottom of the cast list, uncredited as a band leader, Sid James. Really? Exactly. We've got to go back and check this out. Um, (laughs) Because that... Yeah, that yeah. would that would mean that he um, gets into the Village Hall of Fame, absolutely, because of Hell Drivers and um, Free Hats for Lisa. Carry On Nurse? Was he in Carry On Nurse? No, he's not appeared in a Carry On No, yet, he think. hasn't. No, it's early Carry On still, isn't it? Yeah. So that might so, be Sid James. But, yeah, again, it, Sid James into the Village Hall of Fame without having yet appeared in Carry On. Yeah, well, we'll double-check that because it just says <laughs> uncredited and I need to find out because I certainly didn't spot him. And the other one. Again, we're going to have to do a bit of research on this. And this is the first time in nearly 40 episodes that we have not mentioned it's a rank-distributed picture. Uh, um, This is really tenuous because I know we normally talk about actors, actresses, directors, things like that. The man that bangs the gong at the beginning of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Now, at first, the the most famous rank gongman was a guy called Bombardier Billy Wells. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a famous, famous story. Yeah, yeah, no, he was yeah. heavyweight boxing champion, oh, 1911 to 1920 or something. You know, he was one of Britain's most successful heavyweight boxers. And he was the man that banged the gong, I think, from 35 to 45. This guy, now let me have a look. I believe, and again, we've got to double check, is a guy called Philip Nyman. And he was the gongman until about 1955, where Ken Richmond took over. So we, if, if we really want to go through, we can double check. You know how many times Bombardier Billy Wells has been on the, uh, on the Village Hall of Fame or, well, or I Phil think, Nine. I think it, I think it needs checking. Yeah. Um, eagle, eagle-eared listeners will will hear the gong at the beginning of each of our episodes. It is the rank gong. I had to include it because it's such a part of British cinema. You know you're in for a good movie when you see that. Right. Yeah, that does need looking into. Yeah. Because I don't. You know, I'm happy with it being tenuous. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, my most most of the things that go around in my head are quite tenuous. It's... So, um, so yes, if that's one we can include, then hell, why not? Yeah, really. And just as a brief aside, cinematographer Douglas Slocum who only died a couple of years ago. He was in his hundreds. He was 102, 103. Went on to be the cinematographer for the Indiana Jones movies. Oh. He had a massively long career, Douglas Slocum. Rollerball, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, as I say, things like that. Well, yeah, it's, it's the, you know, you can see where he's cut his teeth and, yeah. and showed, showed his um, his skills. It's good that he'll actually still being utilised um, later on on and on, you know, big features rather than being relegated to a sort of lesser level on doing casualty or whatever exactly so, <laughs> exactly he was he was um director of photography on the titfield thunderbolt oh yes so he's, he's, he's close he's, he's snapping at the heels of the other guys here so we'll see him we will see him before very long yes but well, we won't see him but well no <laughs> we'll certainly be chatting about him that's for sure yeah. okay first time watch for you first impressions mate uh, well, I was anticipating it um, with 
um, interest and uh, with pleasure because even though it's not a fun film in the, in the sense of uh, <laughs> a, a, a typical a comedy or anything, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's not it's not what typically Ealing is known for. Mm. Though we know that Ealing did do um, other types of films beyond the comedies and usually quite well. So I, I, I was expecting quality and that's what I got. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't leave me sort of waiting at all. It got straight into what was going on. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's that was, I think, one of the beauties of it, that it, it didn't hang about. It got straight in, but without it feeling jarring either, it was just like, because this is a, a slice of life film almost, despite the dramatic circumstances of an escaped convict, um, showing that slice of life of East End London in 1947 and the plethora of characters around it and, as you say, just the focus on the home and the community around it. I mean, you can't, can't deny that um, it's got a vibe of um, EastEnders to it, um, just as far as the soap opera element, which you mentioned before. Mm. But in my mind, a lot more watchable than EastEnders. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> most things are. <laughs> yeah, most things are, yeah. Um, but absolutely, it, you know, you could see straight from the start that there was a, a quality to the writing and the performances and also to the cinematography, like you say. Mm. There was um, one thing that hit me very early on. Yeah. There was um, a shot of the the two older girls in the family yep. uh, who share a room. Mm. And one of them was, they were having a conversation as one of them was leaving the room. And she's turning at the door to talk to the other one. Yeah. And right next to her is a, a cupboard, a closet, mm-hmm. for, for want of a better phrase for the American Arnos, uh, <laughs> with a, a mirrored, mirrored door on it. And she stood there talking off camera to the other sister who is reflected in that mirror. Perfect. So, you, mm. so you're seeing both of them, both parts of the conversation without them both being in shot as such. And the, there was that and the use of lighting and, and you know, straight from the start, you, you've got that. But yeah, it was just engaging from the beginning that you were wanting to know more about these people and where it was going, this story, and how it was all going to pan out the bits you did know about from the synopsis. Yep. But granted, there was, you know, numerous threads within the story that were um, that were just background and maybe not resolved as such or maybe um, not, not the focus point. But they added a richer texture to what was going on. I mm. think it, it would... It, I don't think it would have been a, a great film without those side elements. I yeah. think if they'd focused just upon the main plot point, I think it, it it wouldn't have actually stood out as a film. I think it would have it wouldn't have had enough to it in not because the plot point wasn't wasn't good, but more so because you needed the context of, right. of this of this dramatic incident yeah. happening. You needed the context of the the mundanity of every everyday life going on around it to give it its its um its impact. Impact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's we sort of touched on this earlier. It's it must have been quite hard hitting and certainly groundbreaking at the time because we're not talking the Wicked Lady here. We're not talking a Gainsborough historical glamorous sort of melodrama. It's that everyday soap opera with that added element of okay, there's there's a bit of danger. 
but it's not as you say it's not overshadowing everything the fact that there's an escaped convict the the main story is how the other characters react to that element of the story and what i particularly liked and it must have been quite novel at the time me and you Stephen, we're we're fairly young chaps you know we we we're not privy to that post-war life we were born 20 plus years after but it's certainly familiar to me some of the elements of what we see you know the rainy sunday afternoon mum cooking the sunday dinner dad popping down the pub or doing household chores that sort of thing you know so many things that are familiar from my childhood in the 70s kids being sent down the shops paul's coupons you know um posters on the wall did you notice the posters on the girls walls it was people like Laurence olivier um, <laughs> yes yeah 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 i did um news of the world pastry making you know all that sort of stuff that wouldn't normally be seen in a movie at this time because it's not glamorous no it was it, as we said it was everyday life that wasn't previously portrayed as as such and it well there, there was depictions in in some films i mean obviously it, it was done i mean i just mentioned about the um Proud Valley, and yeah. was, you know, actually yeah. showing the home scenes there. It was showing the, the the life, but it wasn't done this way. This this was this was it Im- embedding you in the the familiarity and mundanity of of life, which, as you say, carries on for for a generation at least. Yeah, that that is the the what is it what is a Sunday? Yeah, you know? one one of the reasons behind it. I'm I'm sort of thinking here now during the war years and a couple of years post-war movies had to be uplifting, inspiring, you know because it was the Blitz, it was, you know six years of hell we were going through and people demanded a bit of escapism to get away from it and we're thinking now it's like 1947 directors, script writers are all sort of taking a little bit of a chance now, or beginning to take a chance on thinking, okay well, the war's been over two years. Let's let's just reflect on what is actually happening now. We we see this coming up in the Ealing comedies a wee bit with they're all <laughs> well, Titfield Thunderbolt, for example. No, sorry, um, Passport to Pimlico in particular. Yes, set around a bomb site. Yeah, you know, and, and the rash and the and the 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 desire to escape rationing. Yeah, and, you know these. It, 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 there's that hard element of of what was going on at the time, but then they put that healing twist on it that puts the magical part to it. This has got no magical part to it. This is just hard hitting. This is what is going on in 1947. It's the everyday family life, but also, like you say, you've got the Spivs, you've got the Alfie Bass character, the trio of hoodlums, you know. You've got the marketplaces, like Petticoat Lane is pictured here, but you've still got elements of it was still tough you know there was still rationing going on and as we say bomb sites is a common theme through most of our real britannia reviews at the moment it just seems to yeah. be commonplace but there was the humor it was showed that the you know there was the humor of just like the occasional witty line of stuff which was you know credit to the writing for injecting in there yeah and there was it, it that is part and partial of the of the british psyche as far as injecting a bit of wit or humour into um, a difficult situation or even an argument um, is just what's, you know, what's done. I mean, you know, the, um, the complaint about buying 
buying flowers off the um, market stall rather than him being allowed to buy them um, wholesale. And then uh, <laughs> <laughs> say her later on saying that she's going out to get some air, but don't worry, I'm go- I'll get it wholesale. <laughs> um, particularly with the Spivs, who weren't so much comic relief, but they provided a a bit of a of a lighter offset in a way of, of, from the main main plot point, although we're we're involved in it to some extent. And I think it's just this rounded view of the family and the community that embeds you in the story. Yeah, because it's it's every part of the family is involved here as well. You you'd think the focus would be on the Googie Withers character because you know it is her ex boyfriend that turns up in the Anderson shelter. But you also see from the girls' point of view, it's, it's quite important that you see the girls because it also reflects on a non-sort of like usual family life because they're her stepdaughters. And yes. looking at from, from what I can make out, she's only a little bit older than them because she married somebody 15 years her senior. Um, and she's got two, I'm assuming, late teens, early 20s stepdaughters. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's not a usual situation. Um not my, certainly in the movies, own, anyway. At this time, no, no, yeah. not 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 displayed in the movies at, mm. at least. Um, but you know, it, it being seen in the film, I mean, for you know, my my mother and her sister mm. um, were um, their their father um, left, and um, my grandmother remarried, and you know, had um, had children. So there was yeah. step brother and sister, and but and that was you know not fat. It was within. Within just a couple of years of of this, I mean, my mother was born at the tail end of the war. Yeah. Um, she was born in in seventy in in forty five. Yeah. So it was it was only only slightly off this, and yeah. then there was that that step family situation with a remarried and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, just um, not saying it never so, happened. So, it's just yeah. I don't think it was something that was ever. No, it wasn't focused on. Yeah. You know, to to the level at which it must have happened because of the loss of loss of um. Adult population, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there would have been there would have been people, there would have been men who went away to war and died. Yeah, um, there would have been, and the widows then left. But then there would have been men who went away to wars and came back and survived. But their their wife and kids had been killed in a bomb. Yes, and um, that that would have meant there would have been more um, families that were um, sort of created as, as step families and exactly. stuff than, than than there had been before the war. But the, as you said. The portrayal of it, as far as the films, no, I can't think of another example really um, where it has been there with any focus. It might have been sort of alluded to, but mm. I can't think of any other film previous to to this or around this era even really that gives it such a focus. This is why I think this is standing out for me mm. as the start of the new wave era, because. There's a lot of stuff in here that has not been seen previously. And fair play to the writer and the director for dipping their toe into a little pool of of real life. And taking, I reckon they must have taken a real gamble with this. Because can you imagine trying to to sell this? All right, you've got the, the escaped convict side of the story. But as we say, that's not the focus of the movie here. I think it's more... The family side of life, even the the three spivs, the three crooks, they're sort of like you say, not quite comic relief, but they're a sideline. They're they're just a separate part going on. It'd be interesting to see 
with the pitch yeah. to the to the finances of the film. Yeah. And also the pitch of the um distributors to the sort of film hall, the cinemas. Mm. Um wh- how whether they did overemphasize the element of the escaped convict. Yeah. And um, and and I don't know whether the escaped convict bit was larger or smaller in the actual base material, the novel, because it's again true. it might yeah. be that they've they've taken a base material novel that is about um, this escaped convict and thought, we could flesh this out and actually do this realism thing that we want to do. Or it might be that the novel actually pays more attention to that and, yeah. and they've had to moderate it a bit. But either way, they have had to take a chance. They've had to or probably do a certain amount of persuading of various people to to let them do what they've done. And, you know, it pays off. <laughs> so you can't deny the, the success of it, but... I, I doubt it was just a yeah, you just go do it situation. I imagine there was a there had to be some convincing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, quite rightly, this was recognised by the BFI about about three years ago, and a huge restoration was done of it, and it was shown got a very limited release. It was screened at the BFI, which is where I first saw it. I was aware of the movie previously charlie had mentioned it on an old stinking pause episode you know we were talking about old movies set in london and he said oh my dad always goes on about one called it it always rains on sunday so i was aware of it but i'd never actually seen it and then when this restoration came out about three years ago i went to see it at the bfi loved it and i've seen it now sort of twice since and what sort of shifted now is that it has become recognized as the forerunner to what comes comes along about 15 years later yeah, the 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 focus of what this movie has become more historically important for what leads up afterwards than for what was going on at the time, and I think it's, it's as we say it's groundbreaking. It's hard hitting. It's nineteen forty seven. This is two years after Brief Encounter, which although is quite realistic, it's still quite um still quite romanticised. Brief Encounter, extremely romanticised. Yeah, and, and the people there, I'd argue, aren't working class. Yeah, apart from your Stanley Holloway or whatever. Yeah, the... yeah, and, and yeah, and obviously, you know, the the actual focal point of the film isn't is is on people who are, are a bit more um, moneyed and a bit yeah. more sort of privileged. Have got that, yeah. They've got those, and they've got those more middle class mores as well. Yeah, as far as their behaviours and the sort of restrictions that they have upon their expression of who they are and what their their wants and and lives are, mm. which obviously with the working classes is, is is different. So again, yeah, I can see that this is a counterpoint in some ways to brief encounter. You know, the the idea that it's the it's the the, the darker cousin. I yeah, think, was it something it? like that? It was it's quite, there, it's quite, it? yeah, quite. <laughs> quite fun but um I, I do think it is a counterbalance in some ways and and it been an example of real life in a way yeah um, i mean previously it's... like you, you sort of touched upon there if if a movie was depicting somebody from a working class background it would either focus on a criminal element or as you said it would be set in a working environment whether it be a mine or a factory similar sort of you know setting to that in this it's every day that's that's i think is the the main point here is it's just an everyday 
believable, you know, especially for people of that class. It's like it's set in a pub, it's set in a bookies. Well, not in a bookies, but you see that side of things of the under underbelly of, of society, marketplaces, things that people of that class were used to. They weren't used to to tea rooms and, you know, uh, women's institute meetings and things like that, as, as depicted in Brief Encounter. They, they were used to, you know, running out to get their cheese rations on a Sunday. Yeah, and it was using the Anderson shelter as a shed. <laughs> which, which carried on for decades, if I remember yeah. rightly. My yeah, dad did, had yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember people, you know, um, that in in my youth, there was people who um, sort of were bemoaning that they'd had to get rid of the Anderson shelter because <laughs> it got too leaky and the, the storage of stuff that they'd had in it. Yeah. Um, it, it is allowing real life of these these people um to be um to be portrayed yeah. and although i know that reading there was um some complaints that um the local residents felt the way it was at least where it was set were complaining that they they didn't feel they were necessarily um portrayed in a positive light yeah it was a it was a truthful light so you know, it certainly was going on much. yeah it was certainly going on at the time you know just the performances. I mean, we're focusing on yes, um, plot and story and influence of of the movie itself. We've got some great performances. Obviously, you know, Googie Withers is top billing. Believe it or not, Jack Warner gets second billing on the credits. Well, Googie, Googie Withers. I mean, I know you commented previously uh, on the previous episode, but, you know, I was aware of the name, aware that there was, uh, you know, sort of acting credibility there, but um, I'd, I'd not really paid enough attention to her until this to actually realise what a striking-looking woman she was. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, she's the, you know, not to not to use it too much of a comparison to, to stop us from, from being her own person, but... Um, you know, she's in some ways. You know, from this, I'm, I'm looking at her and thinking, you're like the British Barbara Stanwyck. You know, you, you've got that that the, the features <laughs> to you that is so striking. Actually, um, the the way you you're projecting emotion through through sort of the steely look and um, and things. It's you know, it's, as I say, uh, new respect and, and appreciation for her. Well, the, the, there's a Guardian review that came out with the re-release a few years ago, described her as the most powerfully sexualised actress in post-war British cinema. There's a lot of the scenes that she's in where she's interacting with various people, to be perfectly honest, where it just stands out her the the intensity of her performance, even yeah. when she's not even when she's not doing anything, um, which is interesting. But when when she is with um, Tommy, the, the the convict yeah. um, guy. There's a, such a there is a smouldering sexuality. <laughs> you can feel there. it, can't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's still I mean, something you know, there. It's, it's 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 probably no accident that um, a year or two later, um, those two got married and <laughs> yeah, um, had a had a had a, a long and long marriage until where uh, just one of them passed away. Um, so yeah, so that that isn't a surprise. But yes, the the strength and intensity of, of her performance, even even in the non-acting, in non when she didn't have anything to do, really, she's just sort of 
stood in the background when people are doing stuff. It's it's just enticing. It and, just works um, so well, isn't it? Because John McCallum, the, the guy that plays the, the escape convict, very charismatic. It's, it's difficult not to dislike him. Oh, sorry, it's difficult to dislike him, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you were talking... Yeah. I was going to say the first one there is what yeah. she usually said about me. But um, <laughs> it's... Um, no, absolutely, there's an intensity, and I think that, you know, obviously he's got the, the chiselled jaw look and the intensity in the eyes that they were going for for an mm. escaped convict and, um, a, a, to some extent, a lead man in that sense. Um, but it, it, it makes it believable that she should have these um, pent-up and unrequited feelings for him, um, yeah. even though they're, they're not returned um, yeah. in that way. Well, we get a, we get a glimpse, don't we? There's a couple of flashbacks of to where they first met, and you know they meet in a pub originally. She's got blonde hair, which is the only indicator they flash back at one point. And then there's a a day trip to the beach or somewhere having a picnic. Yeah, and he does actually present her with a ring, doesn't he? At this point, so. Mm, a ring that he later on doesn't remember giving her. Yeah, exactly. Another point to the story. You know, see things like that. I think make this special. One thing I just want to point out, and I can't for the life of me fathom out why it was included. There's two very brief scenes of the car, and they use a model shot. I I I noticed that. Yeah. That the the the. the I looked at it and thought, bloody hell, that looked like a... Mo- oh, it was. Yeah, um, but, but there's no reason, because yeah. it's not as if it's a it, car crash or anything going on. It's just the car driving down the road. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it amused me um, uh, as as a point, really. I just... Uh, yeah, I, I, I looked at it and I thought... <laughs> and I actually went back and went, it was it's a model. actually a it's model, like, yeah. Like and, plastic uh, people sitting in the seats, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, it, it started from, um, you know, I expected um, Ringo Starr to start doing a voiceover about Thomas. <laughs> it did um, look like that. <laughs> but um, that, I think, is out, you know, is out of place as far as the, the production values and the, yeah. I mean, they were going for something there that were trying to actually make an improvement and maybe show, you know, speed being done or whatever that they maybe couldn't actually yeah. do with film. I mean, who knows? It might be that there was something happened that, that all the shots of that were ruined and they had to do a recreation. Minute, um, yeah. You know, who knows? Um, but it was, it was inventive, if not convincing. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't detract from the whole enjoyment of the movie. No, absolutely honest. not. It doesn't, no. The, the, and as you say, the other performances... Um, we go through as well the the the, the meant to be teenage the, the girls they were fantastic um, the stepdaughters they're i mean they're, they're different characters as well and mm. um, one of them more, more sort of thoughtful and docile and and calmer and the other one um a, a wild away. child yeah um and they both give excellent performances um individually as well as t- together yes um and full credit to them. As does to, the young son, as well. Yeah. We, we seem to, you know, tend to forget about him, but he was, he was quite impo- well, not important, but he was there throughout the story. You know, trying to do extra chores so he can buy a was it a mouth organ, wasn't it? He yeah, to buy a mouth yeah, organ. mouth organ. Yeah. Great. It's, it's what I like about this, where it's different, say from Brief Encounter or, or other movies. If 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 this was a, a, a movie set around or made at this time we would see 
the, the these Cockneys would be the cheerful, cheeky, cheeky chappies. They yeah, they'd be it, the comic relief. Yeah, be, uh, yeah, and being patronised by the upper or the middle classes. Whereas with this, it is on that level all the way through. It's just reflected completely as this is what you're going to get here. A slice of life and we're not going to divert up to any other point apart from East End family life and East End criminal life as well. So that's what I enjoyed about this and I can see why it's sort of generally regarded as the kickstart for British New Wave cinema. Yeah, I think it, it. I think it's got an extra resonance for you. Obviously, with with the echoes of the East End life. Oh yeah, the family, um, in, the family into, into your, into your yeah. own home life yeah. um, in in your youth. Um, but I think that's that's a, a, a cherry on the cake for you, yeah. rather than it being because it's 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 a, a fantastic film in itself. As I said, the the performances are great. The the script. Um, just works and is on point, and um, it's, it's, there's not, there's not really. I, I, I make a point about Back to the Future, mm-hmm. um, and this is the discussion I had previously um, on history misunderstanding when I did it with yeah. Smokey. We, but yeah. we both, you know, agreed on this point that Back to the Future. There's hardly any wasted um, dialogue. Yeah. or a screen time. Everything is there for a reason and everything that's said works without it being forced, but is there and it actually adds something to the film. It's not just there just as filler. Yeah. And the same with this, really. It's hard, I, I, I was, The script is so on point. There's, there's hardly any bits of it that you that you could actually cut out yeah. without, without losing some nuance of the story or expansion of, of the characters, um, which is... It's amazing, really, that um, it, this that skillful um, penmanship mm-hmm. was was there, um, and as I said before as well, the the cinematography um, was I think was great, considering you know, fantastic. especially considering that when it was done. There's a couple of scenes towards the end where just after John McCallum leaves Googie Withers after he's he's beaten up Soapy in the house and she's been knocked to the floor. He, he, he takes off in the car and there's a scene, there's a bridge going over and it's backlit and you can see smoke from a chimney. And Jimmy Hanley, who we saw previously in The Blue Lamp, who's playing yeah, one of the we, crooks. We, we saw that the, the <laughs> listeners haven't heard about yet. Yeah, we haven't, well, we, we lost that one. And um, just the lighting there, even like the night shots are recreated marvellously, very atmospheric, as I say, lots of smoke, lots of fog because of the rain as well, the rain-soaked streets, which is a great tool in any cinematographer's toolbox, is, is a wet street, because of the light you can get reflecting off of puddles and things like that. And at that point, I've just suddenly remembered there's a bit where Jimmy Hanley attacks the guy under the railway bridge, beats him over the back of the head, I think with a brick, and his false teeth fly out. Did oh, you, I missed that. Did you not spot that? It's about... Yeah. Oh, ten minutes before the end of the movie, um, Jimmy Hanley attacks this guy, and, and as the guy falls to the floor, both upper and lower set of false teeth are seen on the floor, skimming across the concrete, going into a puddle. Let's <laughs> hope they didn't have to repeat that scene too many times, <laughs> brushing them off and putting them back in. Yeah. But, um, no, that's and that's 
hard hitting. It's, 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 it's not been seen, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's absolutely hard hitting. Hard hitting enough to knock teeth out. But um, it's um, no, it's, it's indicative of the 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 detail that they were they were going for the tone on yeah. this mm. and and the and yeah and and the sort of reality of it because you know fights aren't glamorous fights mm. are fights are just stupid a lot of the time or yeah. or horrific they're not not as you mostly see in in where there's fight scenes going on where it's choreographed and people are you know taking turns hitting each other and stuff it's scuffles exactly. a lot of the time and you end up with these kind of things hats being knocked off glasses going awry yeah, yeah, teeth flying broken out broken chairs you know. is always a good one isn't it the break yeah. so easily across somebody's back and yeah with this one and yeah. every every time i've tried that with you it never works so easy it never does, does it? it hurts like buggery mate it really does but yeah, yeah false teeth flying out in a fight probably never seen before probably never seen uh. before uh, but um, it's 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 a film that that is just injected with quality from a number of angles, and it's uh, as the sum of its parts, it's definitely greater as well. So, you know, there's a lot in there for people. I'll take it you enjoyed it then. I would say so. Yeah, mm. um, I enjoyed it more than I was expecting to. I was expecting to to get pleasure from it. I was expecting to have appreciation for it, but um, not to the extent I did. Sometimes I I, yeah. went, went beyond that. Sometimes we get our fingers burnt a little bit where we we find some of these what are generally regarded as classics and we look at them and we think, okay, it's dated badly, it's not a particularly good movie now, or generally we just think it's not a good movie. But in this case it's one that's not spoken about particularly often, especially not up until three years ago. It was it was virtually forgotten. Well I think the like like we've highlighted before in, in keeping what you just said that the there's some films that lose lose the ability to be appreciated fully based upon the fact that some of the elements are based around s- stuff from the time that's been forgotten about so yeah. you, you miss out on those elements you don't appreciate the the impact of rationing say in, in Passport to Pimlico and mm. you know if it wasn't for the fact it's it's a plot point of them being able to enjoy the freedom of not having it and there's some things that can get lost in some films historically um because we're removed from that day and age exactly yeah where was where was this yes there's references to there's references to the um, rationing there's references to um you know the the him being the subject of of a, a whipping in oh, the cat um, nine tails yeah in prison yeah which um was very close around this, I, 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 if my memory served me, yeah. it was re- you know, on the cusp here Being where that appealed. was abolished. Yeah. Um, but they're just thrown in there as a science. They're not, not not important enough for you to actually um, have knowledge or experience of that. This this film is, despite everything else we've said about the context of it around the, the day and age as far as the um, importance of it as a film, it, it, the appreciation of it is timeless because exactly. of the themes that it's dealing with. Apart from, um, you know, the chase scene at the end, which, you know, is is the crime part of the story, it's essentially a movie about a family, and it is a precursor to the soap operas almost. It's just, there's, there's a good 20 characters that have decent speaking parts in this film. And we get to know enough about all of them, I think, throughout the 90 minutes. And I think that's what stands 
makes this movie stand out above all the others of this era is is the fact that it is an everyday film and of it's, course it's now, a fa- yeah um, it's a family portrait with the um the, the the crime element as just being a almost a MacGuffin really yeah. it's a it's the plot plot driver on that day is the the crime but it's a it's a portrait of the family which yeah. you know it's, it's great is very, yeah very eastenders yeah <laughs> so it's better than EastEnders, as we said. Yes, a lot better than EastEnders, <laughs> as is, as are most things. Yes. Um, so, perfect. so yeah, there's there's a lot in here. Really, there's a lot in here, and I think that it's it's a it's something that deserves the, the more recognition, and it's brilliant that that for something that could have been lost if it wasn't rediscovered yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, I think it's it deserves highlighting more oh yeah definitely encourage people to seek it out there's a fantastic blu-ray copy of it crystal clear copy of it out there now for for everybody to see and and i just and i discovered belatedly that um just out of curiosity i looked that that you can actually watch it on youtube really but it's with with, um greek subtitles of course so it's all in cyrillic um, this, these Greek subtitles. I assume it's Greek. They have um, strange tasting movies. Use, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect kickstart to the British New Wave cinema season. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, a brilliant choice to to sort of start from, um, as well as it being a great film in its own right. Well, I'm looking forward to carrying on here. I might get a couple more in before we get to what's generally considered the first one. Yeah. As as a lead up to a very very important piece of um, British cinema history. Yeah, so you should. So and and people out there, you know, can follow that those up as well. Mm. Um, as well as I think they should follow up this. I mean, this is a yeah. film that you know, for my for my um, reviewing system, I would I would suggest most people go and have a look for because it's it's a good film as well as culturally important. Definitely, so. good man. Okay, let's take a short break. We'll be back just after this. Okay, Stephen, chatting to you for an hour or so every Sunday is obviously the highlight of my week, as well you know. <laughs> you, you, you laugh. You need to get out more, don't <laughs> But there's one particular part of our chat that I look forward to more than any any other, and that is this part. Stop. Yeah, it's the end when I, when I stop recording. <laughs> no, it's, it's this part where, where you reveal to me what you're going to throw at us to review, because... Believe it or not, dear listener, nine times out of ten, we don't know what the other person is going to choose. Um, only in certain certain occasions, we we concur, don't we? We we agree on what we're going to. Yeah. Like yeah. like the tip, um, a passport to Pimlico was was a joint decision for specific yeah, and, reasons. Um, uh, you know, Life of Brown, and um, I think at at some point we had discussed, although we didn't discuss when we were going to do it, but. There was another film we did, we discussed that we were going to cover. I mean, another Scrooge as as well. That was um, yeah, the, the Wicker Man. We'd said we were going to do it at some point, but we didn't decide exactly when. So when you threw that at me, I knew, yeah, I knew knew it was coming at some point. So that wasn't entirely a surprise. But um, but still, yes, vast majority of the times it's um, 
you know, to be to be fair, mm. as well, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Um, I think we've both admitted sometimes at the beginning of an episode we've been talking off air, and we um, we were still umming and ahhing our, ourselves about what we're going to oh, suggest to the other person. Honestly, so, sometimes I, it gets to this point, and we're still going. Um, should I pick that one or that yeah, one? Um, I have, I have um, three or four sometimes, and I'm still not sure until literally this point, and I'll go, oh, that one. That's how yeah. we'll do it. Well, that's what's happening with me. Uh, well, <laughs> has happened with me at the beginning of this. I was, I was, I was torn between two, mm. um, but um, it's partly through the view, partly through also it was one that I've had a stronger feeling about wanting to get round to viewing um, sooner rather than later. Okay. So um, that's driven me to my to my choice today mm-hmm. um, to suggest to you. It is, um, it is a, a we're moving away from. 1947 East End, and we're moving to um, the um, late 1990s um, up in Yorkshire. So that's you know it's, it's a slight movement away. This is a comedy um, drama. There's not any crime in this, but there is some music and a little bit of romance. Uh, yeah, in it. it's it really is a tour de force performance from from the the main character um, for whom the original stage play was written. Mm. And I'm sure you've seen the film, but um, it's Little Voice. Oh, I, I went the other way. I was going to say it was Brassed Off. Uh, well, that was that was <laughs> one of the other contenders, yes, was Brassed Off, and I thought, See, no, I'll go, I'll go for Little Voice first. Michael Caine. The first thought to me, he's not, he's not Jane Horrocks, it's Michael Caine. Um, is it Brenda Blethyn as well, isn't it? Little yeah, Voice. it is, yeah. Yeah, Ewan McGregor. Um, Philip Jackson, you know, Jim Broadbent's in there as well as a as a um, oh, support character. Superb so choice. It's, um, just and, it, and you know, obviously, it's more romanticised. Although there is some realism in it that is is quite stark. Um, mm. There is a romanticism and um, in this that wasn't present in um, it always rains on a Sunday. Oh, yes. So, but um, but yes, we're you know. We're going to be, um, we're going to Scarborough. Scarborough, that's right. 1998, according to IMDb. Haven't seen it since um, 21 years ago. Wow. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. And it, it's bizarre, that, you know, because when I get to a film, and I say, oh, I haven't seen that since it came out, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, wherever it may be. There's no reason why I shouldn't have watched them again because I enjoyed them that time round, and it's always at the back of my mind. Oh, I watched that again, and I never do. I never I get. That's be- I think that's because you're too busy watching <laughs> thousands of other watching, films. watching thousands of other films. It's not like you've not watched any films in the meantime. No, I, I would I would calculate you've you've watched at least a handful of films since then. Since 1990, I've seen a couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic! Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Great soundtrack, oh, comedy. Soundtrack, yeah. yeah, Michael Caine playing out a character. Oh yes, and not Oscar winning, but I believe it was Oscar nominated, wasn't it? There was there was nominations across the board in all sorts of categories in all sorts of award um, ceremonies. Um, surprisingly, picked up very few things, but lots of nominations. Let's see, right. So we're going from south to north. In our movie choices, that's that yes, seems and, to happen quite often as well. Actually, yeah. if you notice and, that, yeah, <laughs> and moving and moving about fifty years, yeah, in time time difference as well. Excellent, fantastic choice, Stephen. Thank you very much for being there, my friend. It's been my pleasure. See you next week. Take care. Cheers.
absolute shower. A positive shower. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. British end up, sir.